I'll invite you to turn with me to uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 15 this morning. First Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to consider Paul's exhortation to them to remember the gospel, to remember the resurrection, to always put that first, to keep it primary and of first importance in our lives. So listen now to the word of the Lord. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am am what I am, and by his grace toward me, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Heavenly Father, may everything I say now be faithful to your word we just read. May your spirit be at work in our hearts that we might receive this word and believe in it. May the truth of the resurrection be affirmed and strengthened in our hearts and minds. And we pray this in Jesus' name, our resurrected King. Amen. Well, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, it's an interesting and it's a unique one in many ways. Uh, Paul had received word uh, about this church, uh, sometimes from letters that they sent to Paul himself, others just collecting information from uh, people that he would send to to hear how this church is doing. And uh, he was not very pleased at all. Uh, He had received a lot of reports about a lot of problems that were going on in this church, a lot of various issues within the church and among Uh, its members. And so right away in chapter 1 of this letter, Paul is addressing these divisions that are growing in the church. Uh, Some claim they're following Apollo. Some claim they're following Paul. Uh, Some uh, think so highly of themselves, uh, they say proudly, oh, well, we follow Christ. You know, that's nice of you to follow those people. We follow Christ. But there's so much division growing in the church, and, and Paul asks them, is Christ divided? Well, the answer is, of course not. And so he's working with them through the first several chapters to address these divisions that have arisen in this church. And he goes on addressing systematically going through this letter. Now concerning this, now concerning that, now concerning this, through all the issues that are plaguing in this church. Issues of of, uh, sexual immorality. Issues of of members bringing lawsuits, taking one another to court over trivial matters. Uh, uh, Issues regarding what they eat. uh, Issues regarding their marriages. What to wear. How to exercise their spiritual gifts. How to how to administer the sacraments correctly. How to worship together. All of these things. You name it. And this church was probably uh, struggling with it. But after addressing all of these issues, 
and they were all very significant. They needed to be addressed. But after addressing all of these things, Paul concludes with one specific area of application, one specific area of doctrine that they must remember. Now, he'll conclude in chapter 16 with some instructions and travel plans and various things like that. But for the main body of the letter, the main content of his message, he concludes here in chapter 15. There's one area, there's one thing that he wants them to, as they, as they walk away from that worship service that morning when they would have heard this letter read to them, this is the one thing he wants them to walk away with. Paul says in chapter 15, verse 1, he says, Now, which is his way of shifting to the new subject, he says, Now I would remind you of the gospel. That is what he wants them to remember. Most of all, above everything else. Because if they don't get the gospel right, if they don't get this right, then everything he's talked about previously is not going to matter. It's not going to work out. It's not going to have the impact and the change in their lives that needs to take place if they don't get the gospel right. And so maybe uh, you're here today and that uh, is somewhat similar to you. Maybe there are a lot of issues going on in your life. I know there's, there's plenty of people here, uh, new faces that I don't recognize. Maybe, like the members of the Corinthian church, your marriage isn't going all that great. Maybe there's some area in your life or in your faith that you're struggling. Maybe there's some, some sin in your life or some struggle that you're, that you're going through. Maybe someone's wronged you. You're struggling with forgiveness. You're struggling what that might look like going forward. Maybe your, your family brought you with them this morning, and all you're concerned about is making sure that I'm not too long-winded. You're just ready to get going. No matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what's on our mind, what is true of all of us is that we need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to get this right. What Paul delivered to the Corinthians of first importance, this is the thing that he told them. This is the first thing he said when he got to Corinth and he planted this church. He preached to them the gospel. And now this is the last thing that he'll bring up that they would remember it as they walk away, uh, uh, that it would be fresh in their minds. This is what we need to know. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news that proclaims that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised to newness of life on the third day. We need that reminder. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to consider this gospel that Paul preached, that he preached so passionately, that he preached so, so eagerly, that he wanted to remind all the churches of this gospel of the resurrected Christ. And our reminder is that we always need to put the gospel first. So let's consider these verses together and consider why this gospel is so important. And the first thing that we notice in, in this letter, the first thing that Paul says in his reminder, is he reminds them of the content of the gospel. That's very obvious. Of course, we, if, we need to be, if we need to remember the gospel, we need to remember what the gospel is. And that's what Paul starts with here. He tells them in verse 3, that this gospel, which was delivered to him and that, that he received, which was delivered of first importance, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that we, he was raised on the third day, and that all of this is in accordance to Scripture. This is the gospel message. This is the proclamation. This is the good news. The good news that Jesus died to save sinners. And this message is no less important today than it was 2,000 years ago on that very resurrection day. 
and the days and weeks and years that passed after it. It's always important that we remind ourselves of this message. At our Good Friday service, we, we considered what it meant uh, that Jesus uh, died for our sins. We talked about that word propitiation, that wonderful biblical word that, that describes the, the fullness of, of what Christ accomplished through uh, his death on the cross. We talked about how that word captures the fullness of what the cross accomplished. That God's wrath, God's wrath against sinners was satisfied. That through his sacrifice, uh, he atoned for or covered over all of our sins. Our sins were actually removed from us. We're, we're forgiven of our sins. And now we, we have reconciliation. His death purchased our redemption. His death paid the penalty and the debt that our sin owed unto God. And that, uh, that payment was, is, is permanent and it covered all of it. All of this is true. And this is incredibly good news. It's unbelievable good news that we have forgiveness, that we have redemption, that we have reconciliation, that we have peace with God, like our assurance of, of mercy earlier in the service. We have peace with God now. We have peace with the creator of the universe. And that's wonderful good news. And Paul adds this phrase, not once but twice, that all of this, all of this happened Christ's death and resurrection, all of it happened in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul, he uses this, uh, the, uh, the plural of this word here because he's not referring to just one specific passage of Scripture, but it's, it's all of the Scriptures. The totality of Scripture, all was fulfilled in Christ. All of it happened according to the Scripture. In Paul's day, at this time, the New Testament was still being written. It was still being inspired. So he's thinking primarily of the Old Testament. And so what he's saying is everything in the Old Testament all pointed to Christ. And we can say it simply. The Old Testament is, is God making promises to his people that he's going to solve the issue of their sin. And God made those promises, and those promises are fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And this is actually exactly what Jesus taught his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And it's actually, uh, it would be beneficial for us to consider uh, some of these episodes. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Uh, and it'll be helpful to see uh, how this all, all played out and to see and hear from Jesus' words himself. So Luke chapter 24 is, is Luke's recording of, of the resurrection. And there's several episodes and stories that happen after Jesus was raised. At the beginning of the chapter, we have the story of how some of the women in Jesus' company, they went to the tomb that Sunday morning and they found the tomb empty. And instead of Jesus' body, it was filled with this dazzling bright light of these men, these angelic beings, who uh, told them and, and who asked them the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? This is the glorious truth of the resurrection, but he is not here because he is risen. And so these women, they, they go and they tell others, but not all of them believe. Not all of them believe their message. It's, it's after this that Luke records, uh, he says, on this very same day in verse 13, this, uh, that there's these two men in the company. They're, they're traveling uh, on the, along the road to Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And so I'd like to pick up there. Let's read a little bit of this, this story of the Emmaus road, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near 
and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. They, they stopped in their tracks and they, they looked sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? Well, it's not that Jesus didn't know. Of course he knew. But he wanted them to tell him. And so they stop and they say, what things? Haven't you heard everything that has happened? Haven't you heard how this Jesus of Nazareth, he was a mighty prophet of God. He, he healed the sick. He restored the sight of the blind. He even raised a man from the dead. This guy, Lazarus, he, he raised him from the dead. We all thought, we all expected him to be the promised Messiah. We expected him that he was going to be the Christ who would redeem and he would restore Israel. We were so excited for him. But he was put to death. They crucified him. They buried him. And he's no longer with us. But look at Jesus' response in verse 25. He says to them, he answers them, he says, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Luke says, beginning now with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You see, with Moses and all the prophets, in other words, in accordance with all the scriptures, like Paul says, all these things took place. And Jesus will say the same thing later. Uh, look over briefly at uh, in verse 44, Luke chapter 24. He's going to later get with all of his disciples, and he's going to tell them this. He, he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he promises them the, the promise of the coming Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But here we have the full summary of the three-part structure of our Old Testament. The Law of Moses, which is the Torah, the first five books of our Bibles, and, and then Jesus mentions the prophets, which is everything from Joshua to, to Malachi. All of the prophets contained therein. And he mentions the Psalms, which is the, uh, the stand-in or the representative head of all of the poetical and all the wisdom literature in our Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, all those things. Each of these three distinct parts of the Old Testament, they all point forward to the coming of Christ and what he accomplishes. And we actually see this right away in our Old Testament. In Genesis 3.15, this is the first proclamation, the first promise of the gospel. Right after mankind fell in sin and in temptation, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against their creator, against his holy God. They hid themselves from him. But even in that moment, even in the midst of their rebellion, God again sought after his creation out of love for them. And even as he pronounced the curses upon them for their disobedience and their rebellion against him, even in the midst of that, he gives them this promise. 
He promises them that there would be a future offspring, an offspring of the woman, a future seed who would crush the serpent's head. He would defeat sin and death. He would trample over sin. But this defeat, uh, this, this accomplishment of the, of the defeat of evil and death, it would be costly to him. His heel would be bruised, a foreshadowing and a promise uh, of, of the death that Christ would die. But it's not a mortal wound. He would rise again. And so with all the Torah, all the law of Moses, the book of Leviticus, that whole book of, of the Bible, that, you know that book, that's the book where we're doing our yearly Bible reading plan, and that's where we get stuck because there's so much uh, dry, uh, repetitive uh, instructions about this sacrificial system that makes no sense to us. But it's an important book because it's all pointing to Jesus. It's the, it's the gospel according to Moses. It's, it's uh, uh, the promise of what Jesus' death and his, his sacrifice of his own body would accomplish for his people. And so all of that book, the whole law of Moses, is pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, who is the great high priest. And all the prophets, likewise, also point to Christ. They prophesy his coming. No doubt Paul had Isaiah in mind, that, that great a prophecy of Isaiah, the suffering servant, that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that he died for our sins, as Paul said. That's what Isaiah is saying. And by his wounds, we are healed. And the prophet Hosea as well, who promised that on the third day he'd be raised and we would all stand with him before God in his resurrection. And we know the Psalms also, likewise, they sing about Christ. Jesus knew these psalms by heart. He loved them. And so they were on his lips, even at the moment of his death on the cross, where he would quote and he would cry out from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, all of Scripture, Paul says, is fulfilled in Christ. This is what Jesus himself taught his disciples, that in Scripture God promises that he will save his people. And he delivers on that promise. That's who Jesus is. That's his person. That's his work. That's what he accomplished. He, he fulfills the promises. That's the message of the gospel. And so as Paul is concluding this letter to the Corinthians, he reminds them that they must put the gospel first. And he reminds them again of the content of the gospel message, that Christ died for their sins, that he was buried and raised on the third day, all in accordance to God's promises made in Scripture. But that's not all he says. He then goes on to remind them not only of the content of the gospel, but he reminds them that this gospel is 100% verifiably, historically taken to the bank, definitely true. That's the second thing he points out to them in the next verses, verses 5 through 7, looking back at 1 Corinthians. He shows them and tells them and reminds them of the eyewitness accounts. And these eyewitness accounts, they demonstrate the historicity of the resurrection event. I, I, I love the way another pastor puts it, talking about the, the importance of the resurrection. He says that the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That's what's at stake here. 
That's what the resurrection proves. The resurrection demonstrates that everything Jesus said about himself is true. And if he rose from the dead, then we ought to believe and follow him. See, the Bible, it, uh, the Bible doesn't make any claims that we ought to have blind faith. We do have faith, and it is faith, but it's a reasonable faith. It's a faith that's based upon a preponderance of evidence. Every gospel account concludes with this resurrection and details the, the historical uh, reality of the resurrection and how Jesus went on to meet with his apostles and disciples and various other people. This is what uh, Paul is summarizing here, this, that how over these 40 days he goes to meet with all of these people. That's what he says in verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve and Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, he says. And then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. This is what Jesus did. He appeared to them. He made himself known to them through the breaking of bread, through through eating. He demonstrated his, his real resurrected body. Listen to how uh, this historical testimony is given in other places in Scripture. Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 3, uh, Luke says that he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during these 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And Luke will, will talk about how he uh, would write his gospel account in Luke chapter 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, talking about the church, all the things that the church accomplished through the work of Christ, just as those uh, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to us, it seemed good to me, to Luke also, having followed all these things closely for some time, to write an orderly account to you. He's writing to this man, Theophilus. He's giving this orderly account, this historical record to him, so that, Luke says, you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And the author of Hebrews, he'll say likewise, he says, that we must therefore pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared is proved reliable, and every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution. That's what's at stake. That's why we need salvation and forgiveness through Christ. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He says it was declared at first by the Lord, by Jesus himself declaring it to us. Then it was attested to us by those who heard, the eyewitnesses, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, what does all of this mean? Why did I read all these verses of Scripture? It's demonstrating for us that nowhere in Scripture are we just supposed to approach this with a blind faith that says, hey, just just trust me on this one. I I have no evidence to show you, but just trust me, I promise. That's not true. But what we have in our Bibles is the historical record that was produced through a careful study and research of several different individuals all working with the eyewitness accounts of over 500 people, including the eyewitness testimony of those very people who were with him the day that he was raised from the dead. Paul wants to remind them not only of the gospel itself, but that they ought to believe in it 
Because everything Paul says, everything Paul said to them as he planted that church, everything Paul's writing to them now is true, and it's backed up with the evidence. But now, you may be thinking, but this still is just it's too much to believe. You're, you're basing all these arguments on Scripture itself, so I'm supposed to just believe this book. There's a couple, at least a couple different ways, a couple different conclusions that we can come to. Either we can say that there's no way that any of this story can be true, that there's, there's, there's no way any of this is real and we can discredit it entirely. That's one option. Another option is to say that, well, maybe this is true. Probably it's true. Maybe there is a God. Maybe he does offer forgiveness, but there's no way that God would forgive me. There's no way that he would want to or have any desire or be able to save me. Either of those options that would seek to discredit or cast away this gospel message, both of those options are answered for us in this next part of this passage. Because both of those things were true of Paul. And it's in his words and in his example that he answers both of these options directly. This is the third thing that we see in this passage, beginning in verse 8. We see here at the end that Paul, he simultaneously, he discredited and discarded the gospel message, discarded the resurrection as, as fiction and myth, while at the same time uh, uh, completely uh, disregarding the possibility that he needed salvation and that he could be saved. The portrait of Paul that's painted in Scripture is is so unflattering, and it just goes to show the grace of God and the, and the mighty uh, act of salvation that he brought in Paul's life. Paul was a horrible person, a wicked person, persecuting the church, taking pride in his persecution of the church before that moment on the Damascus Road when he was saved. But God saved him because God is able to save to the uttermost, Scripture says, to the farthest reaching places. There's nowhere beyond his reach. Even God's fiercest enemy, even his most violent enemy, the most violent enemy of the gospel, God is able to save and he delights in saving that person. And so to the one objection that says that God wouldn't want to save me, I wish it was true that God would save me, but I know God couldn't save me after what I'd done or who I am or or, or anything like that. He couldn't save a sinner like me. If that's your mindset, then might I suggest that you don't think so highly of yourself that you diminish God's grace and His mercy toward you. He is mighty. He is powerful to save. We saw this in the baptism earlier and we talked about some of those amazing promises and those pronouncements of the verdict over sin. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where he promises that he separated our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. That though we were once like scarlet in our sin, he has made us white as snow. All of these wonderful promises, they're proven true because of the resurrection. Because that is true, we can believe that God will fulfill all his promises that he makes to us in Scripture. He demonstrates to us, he, he shows us that he is able to do 
everything that he promises, everything that he pleases to do. But there is that other objection, that some would simply disregard the whole thing as a myth, that it's, it's too crazy, it's impossible to believe. I was thinking about this, and I was reminded of, uh, of a time when I was visiting a friend from seminary, and, and we went to uh, the city Kalamazoo, uh, Michigan, which is a real place. It's a, it's a crazy name. Uh, but we were there. Uh, we were catching up. We were getting a drink together, and we were just talking. We were discussing our, our classes we had together, d- talking about random theological things, just really nerdy, boring stuff. And there is a guy sitting next to us, older gentleman, and he, he overheard us talking about these things, and, and he started asking us questions, and, and we started talking. And he was, he was very open about his, uh, his atheism that he did not believe, and, and uh, he was well-studied, he was well-researched, he had considered a lot of these things, and he was giving a lot of pushback. And, and my friend David, he was a much better student than I was, so he, he actually remembered all of these arguments and these things, and he was able to talk with him so faithfully talking about all these objections and answering every single one that would come up. But the conversation wasn't going anywhere. And we maybe talked for about an hour. It was, a, it was a wonderful conversation, but it wasn't going anywhere because actually Kalamazoo guy's problem, it wasn't the lack of evidence. His problem was that he simply did not want to submit his life to the resurrected king. That was his problem. That is what was holding him back. He just didn't want to believe. And I'll never forget the, the ending of that conversation. As we were, we were walking to our cars now, and, uh, and, and we gave him, and I gave him just this one final plea. Would you just abandon all this nonsense? You know, I, I know that you know that you don't actually believe what you're saying. Just abandon it all. Come to Christ. Believe in him. Receive that peace and that forgiveness in Christ. And I remember he, he said to us so defiantly, he said, I wish that God would strike me down with a thunderbolt right now because then I would believe in him. It's like, oh, what can you say to such defiance? Do not be so hard-hearted. Maybe you do. You need to do some more reading. You need to do some more researching. But the case is laid out before you. There is no more evidence that's needed. The case has been decided. The courtroom has been closed. The tomb is empty. Even a sinner like Paul who persecuted the church, who was happy to do so, even he was saved. No one is beyond God's power to save. And the result is God used him to do mighty things in the world. As as he went around the world, he preached the gospel, he planted churches, he he worked hard, uh, he says, he worked harder than anyone. But not his working, but God working through him. God working through him by his grace. And he ends this passage with this, this final thing, and we'll conclude with this as well. In verse 11, he says, So we preach, and so you believed. Faith comes by hearing the word. And that is why we're so committed here at this church 
We're so committed to the faithful, simple, verse-by-verse preaching through God's Word. And we're going to keep preaching so that all who belong to God would come to faith through His Word. Not just today, not just on Easter Sunday, but every Sunday we'll preach a crucified and risen Savior. And we'll do this again next week. We'll do it the week after as long as the Lord sustains us because every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. There's no Sunday in which the truth of the resurrection is not there for us in a powerful way. Every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday because our God is not dead, but he is risen. He is alive. Would you believe in him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the resurrected king. You are not dead. Jesus, you are alive. And you we have life everlasting. What incredible good news. I pray this morning for those who have believed in your name, those who profess your name, that the word preached and soon the sacrament that we'll take together would even more strengthen our faith and our trust in you. But Lord, for those in this room who may have not yet professed their faith in you, Lord, you are mighty to save. May the word preached and the testimony of the sacraments of of baptism and the Lord's Supper both uh, witness today. May they drive them to you. We know that faith comes by hearing and that your word never returns empty. Lord Jesus, continue to build your church. You are faithful to do it. Send your spirit to us to grow in faithfulness. And we pray all of this in your holy name. Amen.